that you're here, church. Open up your Bibles to the book of John. We have a couple of more minutes to spend on this Sunday afternoon understanding the why of Christmas. Now, believe it or not, we're going to continue in our series in John. Because providentially, what we're going to be focusing on is what John 1, verse 14, has already been teaching us. So open up your Bible to the book of John chapter 1, and I want to set you guys up that this is part 1 of the Christmas story today, so that's going to try to get you guys back next Sunday so you could finish it off with us. But we're going to be focusing on John 1.14, specifically now, after we've spent several weeks on John 14, the first four or five words, we're going to spend these next two weeks on the next couple of words. So if you remember what verse 14 says, as we read it together, and the word became flesh. And then what happened? And dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. These three words are going to be our primary focus for the rest of this service and the rest and the, and the next and, and I want to recall your memory to, to understand once more what we were singing, what the Christmas story is about. It is this notion and understanding that God became flesh. And we understand the implications to that. This is a moment, the greatest moment in human history. Believe it or not, friends, it beats the invention of the telephone. It beats the invention of the car. It beats the invention of the iPhone, that coveted iPhone. It beats the invention of Netflix, Disney Plus, or Air Jordans. This is the most important event in our human history. God became a man. God became a human. And if you've been with us during, this, during this, uh, these past couple of weeks and months, you've understood why that has happened. And primarily the focus of this becoming flesh is so that he would save us from our sins. You heard it. You may not have understood the words before when you sing this on the radio. If you've turned on 93.9 since October 15th, you've been listening to Christmas music ever since. And you've heard Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And you've heard all these wonderful songs. But you may not have heard or seen the words. They talk about the incarnation. They talk about man, God becoming man and living and habitating with sinful people. They talk about the angels proclaiming this wonderful entrance into humanity of a Savior, which is Jesus Christ. It isn't just the baby that we focus on. It is his life story that we appreciate and are saved by. And, are, and for this reason, we worship this perfect baby not just because it, it had good hair, not just because it was nice. It was a perfect human being because it grew up and it proved to the world that it was obedient up until death. It proved to everyone that it was perfect because of his obedience to God. For what? To satisfy our greatest need. Friends, you and I know that there is 
a huge chasm between us and perfection. None of us can ever achieve perfection. None of us can ever get or become perfect as much as you may think you are. We can't. And so therefore, perfect, imperfect people fall short of a perfect God. But the work of Jesus Christ came so that he became perfect for us. His humanity is proof that he served the perfection for us so that he can live a perfect life for us and become the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. The story of this baby is this wonderful entrance into humanity, but it doesn't just rest in the manger. It grows and it goes and it fulfills its purpose, which was to die. If you look at the Christmas story with this prophetic lens in scripture, this baby's mission was to die. Now that may be for some like, oh man, that, don't put it that way. I mean, we're trying to have fun here. This is Christmas. But this prophetic mission for this baby was to die. But hey, he would not stay dead. He came to give us life. And eternal life because he defeated the, the grave and he defeated death himself. This was for our work. This was for our need. This was for our salvation. And he does this perfect work because, friends, you and I could never do it. And he lives this perfect life because, as you know, we cannot be perfect. And he gives off this perfect sacrifice, this perfect work, because you and I could never offer up a perfect work or sacrifice. Nothing that we could give is perfect enough. But it is through the life of this baby uh, that unfolds in the Christmas story. It isn't Christmas, the, the December 25th isn't Jesus' actual birthday. Just so that you know, this, this was just a, 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 a came into existence in, in roughly the 4th, 3rd century, around 297, where, where December 25th was, be, became known as the birth of Jesus. But we're not really sure when that birth took place. Some say it was around the Passover, so it must have been March or April. Others say it was January 6th. It doesn't, we're, we're not too sure, but here, here it is. It doesn't matter. What matters is that he was born, that he came. He could have been born October 1st. He could have been born January 6th. It doesn't matter. It may be an inconvenience for us because we like this break in December, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that he came. This event is, is spoken of time and time again for us so that we understand why he came and what he did. But the verse here doesn't just remind us that the word became flesh, God became a man. What this verse in gives us and portrays for us are these wonderful words. Read it with me one more time. And the word became flesh, and what did it do? It dwelt among us. This is going to be the theme for the next couple of weeks. Possibly three more weeks. I'm going to try to finish it in two. But this is going to be our theme. What does it mean for God, man? What does it mean for the God of the universe, creator of all things, of every single person here, of the person that can know, that knows your heart, that knows your mind, that knows everything about you? What does it mean for him to dwell among us? 
This is what we're going to be seeing and understanding. If, if you look at the play and you remember the play, you remember this wonderful angel that came up. He flew in and then he flew out. And then he flew in again and then he flew out. And then eventually he left. Jesus Christ dwelt, lived, inhabited, developed a home among us. He wasn't in and out. Jesus Christ dwelt among us. So I want to lay some heavy emphasis on, this, on, on, the, on these words because it is for us that he comes to live amongst us. Think about it, friends. What's so good about us that God wants to live amongst us? What do we have? It's impressive to understand this and to know what the Bible teaches on this dwelling. So I want you to record that in your brain. I want you to feel this. If you leave today and, and if you're going to learn something today, I want you to know that God came to dwell amongst people like you and me. The Christmas story is ultimately God choosing. Check this out. This is God. God chooses to live among us. Do you understand what that means? God chose to live among us. Now, now, if you've grown up in the city, especially around here in Cicero, maybe in Chicago, you see the houses lined up like, like back to back. There's no, the, the gangway is like you have to walk sideways to get to your yard. There's no room. You can hear what the, what the person, your neighbor is eating for breakfast. You know, if it's Captain Crunch or Cheerios, you can hear. That's how close the houses are. So many of us are like, man, the, we want to move away. We want to go to places like Plainfield and to go where there's no other person around me for the next 10 miles. We want our space because it's troublesome to live amongst our type. I mean, there's never any parking. We can't even, we're going to, in a couple of months, we're going to be shoveling the snow and putting up lawn chairs to reserve our parking. It's ridiculous. We, we would rather live in peace. And, and to, in order to live in peace, we, we go away, far, far, far away. And, then, and God, for some odd reason, decides to live among us. We, at times, want to live apart from us. God came down as a baby and grew as a man in order to live among people like you and me, sinful people. That's why we read and we heard in the play that the, the gospel of Luke portrays it like this. In the city of David, there has been born for you a savior. What has been born? A savior, not a beautiful baby, not just a baby boy. Oh, let's praise the baby boy. No, what was born, what was prophesied, what was given to, to the people for hope and, and, and for a one-day fulfillment of the pact and promise, that promise was a savior. It wasn't just a baby. It was a savior. Luke says, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The, the, the question will always come up, what, why did we need a savior? Why did God send a son, his son? Why is the second person of the Trinity coming down to save? Who is he saving and why is he saving us? And why, and why do we need saving in the first place? 
But Luke gives us this understanding and we saw the shepherd boys and we saw the wise men come in. And who were they looking for? Were they looking for a baby only? Do you think three grown men wanted to go see a baby? Was that something that they had to do? No. The word of God in Matthew and in Luke tell us that the, the wise men and, and that the shepherd men, what they wanted to see was a savior. They went to go look for a king that laid in a manger. This king and this savior was the one that will rescue us from sin. If you want to sum up the Christmas story, my friends, the Christmas story is more than tamales and hot chocolate. The Christmas story is more than Christmas, receiving gifts and eating. The Christmas story is about your and my salvation from sin. That's what Christmas is really all about. Now I know we can enjoy, and I want you guys to enjoy in a couple of days, some of you guys are going to have two, three days off of work. How many of you can say amen to that? Praise the Lord. I don't have to see those people anymore. Well, for two, three, two, three days. Now you got to go back. But, but, but you're going to be able to relax. You're going to be able to, to, to enjoy your time off with your family. You're going to be able to eat. You're going to be able to receive gifts. You're going to maybe have the benefit of going and giving generously to others. But we cannot forget and we cannot con con condense the Christmas story to just these external celebrations. The Christmas story ultimately is God coming because the mission was to rescue you from sin. That's why the wise men, that's why the, shepherd, the shepherds went because they wanted to see their king, their savior. The savior, Paul emphasizes it, emphasizes it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, is the savior that would reconcile us in his body of flesh as a true man. This Savior came to reconcile us, bring us back together. So I want you to think about this. As, as I mentioned, the main theme of the Christmas story is found in those three words, he dwelt among us. And in order for him to dwell among us, what he's doing in that dwelling is this wonderful concept of reconciliation. Bringing us to him. So let's answer some preliminary questions. As we dive deeper into this meaning of dwelling, let's answer these questions. Where did he dwell? John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Where is this place? Where did he come into? And what did he do? Well, immediately in the Gospels, Christ came into a world, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God came into a world that was hostile towards him. It was in hostility. It was a world that, as we saw in this wonderful play, when, the, when, the little, when, 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 when Joseph and Mary were walking around looking for a house, and they were knocking, did you see them knocking? They were acting it out, all nice and cute. They're knocking. Literally, it was a world that had no place for a savior, no place for a king, no place for Christ. 
He was born into a world of persecution. The, the, the wise men and the shepherds, they, they were looking for a king. And King Herod was a little bit jealous. They like, wait, wait, what king? Who? Oh, okay. So, so there's a king coming. Well, then I'll just have to go out and kill everybody under two years old. That's a boy. King Herod was out to kill Christ upon his entrance into this world. Can you imagine? We see the Christmas story from, from afar. We're, we're looking at it from a distance. But in that birth narrative, there was someone seeking to kill that baby. We see the beautiful baby the way it was portrayed, and we see it all over Christmas season and all the churches that they put the, the, the nativity scene. We're like, oh, this is so cute. This is so amazing. But what we forget sometimes is that this beautiful baby was being haunted, was being hunted down like a, like a villain ready to be murdered. He was born into a world that rejected him completely. If you remember what we read a couple months ago in John chapter 1, verses 11, a world that rejected him. In a world that was not necessarily um, in favor of his entrance because even John the Baptist came before Christ and announced his coming, and even so, they wanted to kill Who did he dwell with? Well, we answered the question where he dwelt with, and where he dwelt with was not a nice place. This is kind of the same narrative that we have in our current culture. Ain't no room for Christ in our current culture. There isn't any room for celebration of Jesus. If you look closely, friends, all around our Christmas season in the United States, Look closely and try to find Christ. Everybody wants to celebrate Christmas. They all want the celebrations, but no one wants Christ. Everyone wants the time off and the gifts. Everybody wants the benefits of Christmas, but no one wants to celebrate the reason why we are actually in Christmas. It's kind of like having your birthday and you don't show up. Everyone's at your house. Everyone's looking for you. Everyone's like, yes, he made it to 40. We never thought he would make it to 40. Wow, he's, he's alive, man. This guy was a thug. I can't believe he's still alive. He's 40 years old, and you don't show up. But everyone still has a good time because there's food and there's drinks, and, and everyone's having a good time, and you're not even there. Christmas, in our context, fits the same narrative of Christmas in the first century there was no room for Christ. Who did he dwell with? He dwelt with those that John says in John chapter 1 verse 10 that didn't understand him. They didn't know him in their mind or in their heart, so they rejected him. But check this out. Even in the midst of people that rejected him, what does, the, what does John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 remind us of? Go back to that a little bit. It's in the same chapter. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God, who were born not of blood, nor out of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He dwelt with those that didn't know him. He dwelt with those that rejected him. But he also dwelt amongst those who, became, who began 
children of God. They became children of God. He dwelt with sinners and children of God alike. How long did he dwell? If we look at this in the English translation, we say he came and he dwelt among us. And that kind of gives us a, 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 in hindsight, it gives us a background. It gives us a pants tense type of situation. So how long did he really dwell then? If he came and dwelt among us, does that mean he dwelt for a little bit? Does that mean that he dwelt for a long time? How long did, has he dwelt or how long did he dwell for? So these two aspects have to be very clear. Jesus himself describes his dwelling physically here on the earth as a short time. If you look at John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 12, they, Jesus keeps bringing this theme back where he says, for a little while longer I am with you. Believe in me for a little while longer because in a couple of days or in a couple of years, I won't be among you anymore. So he recognized that his time on earth was relatively short in the physical sense. So there's a temporary aspect in the physical sense that he was here. Some speculate that he was between 32 to 34 years old. He was relatively young. I'm 36 years old. Jesus was here relative two years shorter than my lifespan. This is what he did for a temporary moment. But what comfort does that do to us? The fact that Jesus came in, was born, and he dwelt amongst people for 33 years, and 2,000 years later, we, we never got to see him. We never got to experience what they experienced. So what does that matter? Well, that's not the only aspect that Jesus speaks on. Because Jesus also promises in Matthew chapter 28, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, chapter 28, where he speaks on the Great Commission, specifically to his disciples and the future disciples. He says, go and preach. But then he says, I will be with you. What does he say? Always. He will always be with us. But wait, wait. Jesus said that I'm not going to be with you that much longer. But then he says, I'm going to be with you always. What? Which one is it, Jesus? Who? What does this mean? Well, Jesus is clear that as he sits and he ascends into the Father's throne, at the right hand of the Father, he is with us in every aspect of our life. This isn't just a temporary dwelling. This is a constant, eternal habitation and encampment that Jesus is doing. And that's why I want to focus on this one word. He dwelt among us, but I want to focus on dwelling. This word is used five times in the New Testament. And all these five times, it speaks on a, an eternal, it has an eternal concept of time. For instance, if you look at Revelation, you don't have to go there, but in Revelation chapter 7, the last book of the Bible, chapter 7, verse 15, about the tribulation saints, those saints that survived the tribulation, he says, for this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and the one seated on the throne will shelter them. Do you guys remember what we read in Psalm chapter 2? At the end of Psalm chapter 2, it says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. What, what Christ is doing with this word dwelling is the same word that he's using to shelter. He is protecting. He is covering his people. 
The last chapter in Revelation says this, chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from, from the throne saying, look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. This is speaking precisely on the new world, the new glorious world, the new Jerusalem. And what does he do? He abides with his people, he shelters them, and he takes up residence with them forever. It's the same word. Dwelling, shelter, and residence. Forever. So my friends, you don't have to worry that Jesus just came 2,000 years ago and that's it. It's done. Good, you know, that's good story, nice story, nice little drama, uh, but it, doesn't, it has huge implications because that same child that was born 2,000 years ago not only lived as a man, but he rose as a man that was dead, and three days later he arose and went into heaven and promised us, you and me as children of God, that he will be with us always. His dwelling is forever, permanent, eternal. How do you know this, Jonathan? Well, if you study the grammar a little bit and you say, well, I don't, I don't have time to be studying grammar. Well, friends, don't worry about it. That's why I'm here. I'm here to help you. If you study the grammar a little bit, this verb of dwelling is what we call in the Greek an ingressive verb. Now, what? Well, man, we're, I thought I came to hear a Christmas story, not some junk about some grammar what the meaning of this grammar of being an ingressive verb means a particular time in the history of man where this verb happened and continued it is a particular time of its inception god became a man at a particular time and never stopped existing God came and dwelt among us 2,000 years ago, and he's still dwelling with us now. He is still alive now. What this means for you and me is that those same promises that he gave his disciples in the first century and his church in the first century still apply to us because Jesus Christ dwelt and is dwelling with his people. Now this word dwelling, like I mentioned, we're going to discuss this with great detail next week, not, not this week. Today I'm just going to give you an introduction. I'm going to try to fish hook you back next week. Hopefully you could come back to spend some time with us in the morning uh, on church on Sunday morning. But this word of dwelling is a word that is particularly used with a very clear focus. It's a word that means tabernacle. Now remember, we're in the New Testament. And the tabernacle, if you're a student of the word of God, you understand at least that the tabernacle existed in the Old Testament. This is something way different. There's two different time periods. Why is this word being used? What does it mean for Christ to tabernacle among us what does it mean for God to tabernacle among us now it's an interesting word because it's it's turned into a verb it's tabernacled he came to tabernacle among us this word in its core essence is is really 
a temporary solution. A temporary solution for what? Well, in the Old Testament, we also have this understanding that in the particular point in time with Moses, there's a tabernacle, but then there's a projection forward to a more permanent temple. And this temple becomes the, the, the center ground of the worship of God and Yahweh in the Old Testament. And this temple is where God's people come together to meet with God. But this temple gets destroyed, gets rebuilt, gets broken down, gets rebuilt. And finally, in the year 70 AD, roughly 40 years after Christ, this temple, the physical temple that was on Jerusalem, is destroyed. Never to be built again. Up until this day, it still lies in ruins. As a matter of fact, there's another church on that sacred ground that isn't a Christian church or a Catholic church, but it is a Muslim church. This temple, then, if we are to understand it only as a physical uh, building, then we'll lose hope because we have no temple. But that's why Christ, very clearly through the Gospel of John, is our dwelling, and he's dwelling with us because Christ is the new temple. I love the words that he says in John chapter 2. I can't wait till we get there when we're studying through this in John. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. See, friends, Christ's dwelling, the dwelling of God amongst us, cannot be destroyed ever. It is permanent and forever. And even when the first century Roman and Jewish people did destroy it, Jesus said, three days. Give me three days and I will come back. You are here because you are under, living under the authority of a new temple in Jesus Christ. So this dwelling, we have to really understand it in order to really get the Christmas story. Believe it or not, friends, this word helps us understand the Christmas narrative a little bit better. Now I know you want to be cheerful and you want to just you just want to hear about the baby and and the and, and you know the, the gifts and stuff like that. I know. But I I don't want you to leave here without having a profound understanding on what this dwelling entails. Let's understand the tabernacle a little bit in order for us to get the weight of this word. Why does God dwell among us? Why does God tabernacle among us? Well, one of the first things that we have to understand about the tabernacle is, it, is that it's God's way of reconciling his people back to himself. I want you to think about this, and it's going to make a little bit more sense. God initiates reconciliation with sinful people and I'm talking now about the Old Testament, but it kind of has mega implications in our current context. God decides to dwell among his people in the Old Testament. And these were people that were sinful, that rejected God, that built idols when they were told not to build idols against God. 
But God uses this tabernacle to reconcile humanity back to himself. He uses this, temp, this, this tabernacle so that man or woman can approach God. See, in the Old Testament, we have this figure of God like he's some angry angry figure, but in reality, he's a merciful, gracious God that is making a way for his people to dwell with him too. Can you believe it? God wanted to dwell even with the Old Testament people. He, the same way he wants to dwell with us, and he makes a way for it by doing a tabernacle. How do we stand before God? How do, we, how do we come to God? Well, if you remember the wise men and the shepherd boys, if you read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, if you read Matthew chapter 2, if you read Luke chapter 2, you'll see that these wise men and these shepherd boys, when they came to the manger, they weren't just like, oh, my God, the baby. Oh, my God, take a picture. Give me get us something. They, they, they bowed down. They worshiped. They came to the manger to worship. That's what they did. Because they had nothing else to offer. Those gifts were, were secondary. It was their worship that they offered first and foremost. What do we have to offer God? Why would God want to dwell with us? What, what good do we have? What can we offer? Can we offer him our money? Is that, is that what God wants with us? Does God want, our, our, is that all God wants? God wants our worship and our hearts. And in order to do that, God develops a tabernacle with his people. It is a form of assistance. Here's a little bit of help in order for you to be able to dwell. Why? Because there is this problem of sin. In the Old Testament, this concept of sin needed to be eradicated because it starts off, if you remember the first book of the Bible, Genesis introduces us to this concept of sin when men and women take bite of that forbidden fruit and sin enters the world. And it is at this juncture that man hides from the presence of God. I, I want you to remind me, I'm always reminding you of this, but remember it. In the beginning, God created all the heavens and all the earth for man and for women, for their habitation, for them to be with God. And in chapter 3, verse 8, it's very clear that Adam hides from the face of God, the Hebrew word there where God is walking amongst the, in, in the midst of the garden, and he asks Adam, where are you? He's using the word penech, which is literally face. He's like, I'm hiding from your presence. Man, because of sin, began to hide from the presence of God, from the face of God, from the intimacy of God. They were kicked out because of sin. So in order to reconcile us, God has to figure out, or mainly, I'm using our words for this, but God has to do something in order for us to come back together with him. And by way of the tabernacle is how he mediates the solution. If you fast forward a little bit in, in, in Genesis, you go to the book of Exodus, and Moses is yearning to see the face of God, but Moses himself can't see it. 
Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 13. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And hear what you hear and did not hear it. Moses and the Old Testament saints wanted to see the face of God. Adam and Eve lived seeing the face of God. But sin kicked them out until the face of God was hidden up until Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When we behold the Son of God, we are beholding the exact presence, panecha of God, his face, his glory, his divine presence. Now, friends, in these three minutes, I'm going to try to wrap up as much as I can. But the Exodus story takes place. We, we know the Exodus story because of the famous Moses, and we know all the plagues that happened, that we know the raising of the sea, and we know all these miraculous events, but we tend to forget that Moses delivers a people. We, we, we kind of finalize Genesis, and we end with Joseph in chapter 50, and, and then we forget that, that, that between Joseph and the, Abra and the Moses story, there's about a 400-year gap. So people were living in slavery for 400, 430 years. And so it is in that slavery that God calls Moses to free his people. And if you know the extent of the story of Exodus and next week, I'm going to dive deep into this tabernacle concept in Exodus. But you know that the primary purpose of the book of Exodus, Upon showing us a redeemer of his people, God is giving us a tabernacle. The last chapter in Exodus is Exodus chapter 40, and it is a story of the tabernacle being built. And in that chapter, the presence of God fills the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, God says, I will abide with my people. So at the end of the day, the Christmas story is God yearning, God desiring, God wanting to live amongst sinful people like you and me in order to bring us to salvation. And we are the beneficiaries of this dwelling. God wanted to dwell so friends, always remember that as the Christmas story unfolds, as you celebrate on December 25th, or if you're Latino, we celebrate for some odd reason on the 24th at midnight because we just can't wait. Whenever it is that you are about to break open your gifts and eat more turkey and stuff your face a little bit more, before you do that, realize that God wanted to dwell with you. And he made a way. And the same way he makes in Exodus with the tabernacle, he makes it in Jesus Christ. Because it says that Jesus Christ tabernacled among us. And now we are in close proximity to God 
because of Jesus Christ. So thank goodness and thank God for that baby in a manger. But thank God that that baby in a manger was the savior of the world and grew up and died on a cross in order to sacrifice for our sins to give us this wonderful access to the throne of God. Thank you.